0: Doctors don't have a clear understanding of it. It started opening up my mind to like, how does the human body work? This is a real thing that really affects people. This is a
1: major pain.
0: Welcome to Major Pain. I'm your host, Jesse Mercury, and this week we'll be speaking with Laura about social anxiety. This presents not only as anxiety during social interactions, but can also affect you before and after social interactions, when you spiral down these thought pathways, thinking about every little thing you did, thinking about your body language and your phrasing of your words, and being worried that people are judging you. Many people experience some form of social anxiety in their lives, but for people with a severe version, it can be crippling and prevent you from living your life to its fullest. After recording this podcast, Laura thought of some examples from her early childhood that illustrate just how intensely her social anxiety can affect her. For example, she used to hide in closets at birthday parties to take breaks from the social interaction, or be unable to buy school lunch in elementary school because she was too nervous to stand in line and have to face any interactions she might encounter. As Laura got older, she decided to tackle this social anxiety head-on. She's the type of person who really likes to face her fears and to force herself to overcome them. And that's what we're going to talk about in this podcast today. She has done a lot of work, a lot of research, going down deep dives on the internet, learning about social anxiety, speaking with therapists, and developing tools that have helped her to push herself past the social anxiety so that she's now living her life in a much fuller way than she was able to before. She talks about examining her core beliefs about herself and how they affect her social anxiety, finding ways to practice social interaction by using controlled exposures, and regulating her nervous system so she'd be better set up to deal with stress. Laura and I are old friends from high school, and I was so impressed with how she handled herself during this interview. Because you can imagine, as someone with social anxiety, getting on a podcast to talk about it, knowing that it's going to be released publicly, is very anxiety-inducing. But she did a fantastic job. This is such an interesting conversation, and I feel like it's really applicable to not just people dealing with social anxiety, but to anyone dealing with any sort of stress or chronic illness in their lives, because the way she talks about approaching changing her life and wanting to change things about her core beliefs and examining her core beliefs, it's just really applicable to anyone who's looking to live their happiest, best life. So, I really appreciate Laura coming on the show, and I also very much appreciate that she is our newest patron. She signed up last week, and I really, really appreciate it. I am trying to bring in some income from this podcast. It would be incredibly helpful while I am unable to work. So, if you'd like to support this podcast, you can head to patreon.com slash majorpainpodcast, Or you can go to majorpainpodcast.com slash support to find all the ways that you can help to support this show. I'll take this moment to thank Steve Kavanaugh, our Patreon producer who helped to make this podcast possible, as well as the rest of our listeners currently supporting us on Patreon. It really means a lot. Thank you so much. So, on the podcast with Dr. Fowler a few weeks back, I was talking about re-examining my relationship to cannabis. Since I use uh, weed products, CBD and THC weed products to help me get through the day and to help manage my pain level. And for the last almost five years since I've been flared up with my mystery illness, I've been using cannabis pretty much every day. And, you know, I, I turned around recently, I'm like, wow, I've been using cannabis almost every day for years. And I got a little in my head about it, a little worried about it. You know, this the medical science around cannabis is pretty limited because of federal regulations about how it can be grown and researched. We just don't know all that much about it and how it interacts with the body. So, I started freaking out about it a little bit. I'm like, you know what? Let's take a break. Let's take a break from cannabis. So, for about three weeks, I used almost none. Um, This was during the time when I went to that wedding in Montana. The week prior to that, I used pretty much no cannabis at all. I just kind of cut myself off off cold turkey. And then while I was in Montana, um, there was a couple times I used it because I was having some days where I wouldn't be able to function without it, and I allowed myself that. Then when I got back, I spent another week completely off of cannabis. And it was really interesting. I have to say, I the first few days off of it, it felt really nice, just the change of pace, you know, just kind of forcing myself off of this substance. And what I did is that, uh, you know, generally when I start to crash during a day, you know, if I'm starting to feel really rough and I feel like I'm not gonna be able to do anything, I will try some cannabis to see if that can keep me going. And if that doesn't work, I'll just end up, you know, laid out on the couch for hours. So, the The thought process that I applied to this is that, you know, a lot of times when you use cannabis self, you end up <laughs> on the couch anyway. So, why don't we just try laying out on the couch first? So, when I start feeling some really intense pain and exhaustion and am not able to think straight, just lie down on the couch and rest and relax and see if you can get yourself back on your feet without a substance. And that actually worked pretty well at first, and I was actually really excited about it. You know, I was thinking, instead of using a substance, I'm going to allow my body to recharge, and maybe that's sustainable. So, at first, I was really excited about it, but after a couple of weeks, I started to see a decline in my overall functionality. I started to notice that I was having a harder time moving my legs and thinking straight, and, you know, I go up and down a lot in functionality, normally, and again, because I have a mystery illness, we don't understand why, but at first, I just kind of took it as, you know, I go up and down naturally all the time. I'm going to try to push through this and see if I can continue to be substance-free. And as I've mentioned a few times on the podcast, I'm currently going through the process of applying for disability because I have had no income for the last five years besides what I can generate from content creation. And I really, you know, I'm I'm a financial drain on my friends and family. And it's hard. It's really hard to not be able to, to provide for and support myself. So, uh, I had this appointment because because I have no diagnosis, disability was having a hard time making a determination about my case. So they reached out and asked if I'd be willing to meet with a medical examiner to have them kind of do a examination to try to determine if if I can work or not. You know, so you go in, you have an appointment Uh, This person asks you a ton of questions and examines your body and just generally tries to get a sense of how you're doing to send a recommendation to the Social Security Administration as to whether or not they think that you are able to work. And I had been nervous um, for months, ever since we first booked this this appointment, I had been nervous that I would have a good health day on the day where I went in to meet with the uh, medical examiner because I go up and down so much, if I were to have a good day, You know, my my illness is completely invisible on those days, besides the fact that I'm using a wheelchair. Um, My muscle spasms, my difficulty speaking, my, you know, problems moving my legs, uh, they all turn down on a good day and then turn up on a bad day. So, I really wanted to have a bad day, but I don't really know how to trigger that. The only way that I have been able to do that reliably is to not get enough sleep. So, I actually thought about staying up all night before my appointment, but... I couldn't because um, I had been off of weed for a few weeks and I was starting to see a pretty serious decline in my functionality. So, I ended up having to get a full night's sleep, otherwise I wouldn't even be able to get up in the morning and get to this appointment. But it actually worked out well that I was having this decline in functionality because I had a really, really bad day on the day that I went in for my Disability evaluation. I had a bad day in a way that actually frightened me, which doesn't happen to me that often because I've, you know, done a lot of mental work to be pretty chill inside of living with this mystery illness and just kind of learning to find my sense of patience and just waiting for the medical system, you know, because every test is months apart. So, uh, yeah, I had a really rough day and, you know, I'm sitting up and talking to this woman about my medical situation. My muscle spasms were out of control and I'm really, I have to push through it because I have to be there and I have to do this appointment. And by the end of the appointment, I was a wreck because she, you know, had me stand and uh, do some physical evaluation. Anyone who's done this before will be familiar with the testing they do, where they have you, you know, move your hands in the air, grab their hands, test your strength, test your reflexes. And for the first time ever, when she tested the reflexes on my right foot, my, my leg didn't move. And this has never happened to me before. So... I I got a little freaked out by that, and then she wanted me to move my right foot, and I couldn't move it. This has also never happened to me before. So, it wasn't just a bad day. It was like an all-time bad day that I had during my disability interview. And I got freaked out at that point, and I put myself back on cannabis after that because... I feel like the number one thing that the cannabis has been helping me with is my functionality, my ability to think straight, my ability to move my body. It feels like it is helping to bridge connections in my brain, and it turns down the severity of my neurological symptoms. So I put myself back on my normal cannabis routine, which is a light use of um, one-to-one THC and CBD in edible or tincture form. And if I'm having a bad day, I will add in some smokables or some vapeable products. Um, so I went back on that the next day. And like 24 hours after my appointment, I could not move my right foot and I was getting pretty freaked out. But once I got some cannabis back in my system, I felt this insane sensation of like nerves crackling. It almost felt like glass breaking and my foot broke free of this position that it had been stuck in for 24 hours and I've been able to move it ever since so I you know I consider this experiment solved. <laughs> I tried going off of cannabis, and I got worse to the point where I got scared, and I went back on it and i I feel justified. In the use of it, as long as I am looking for a diagnosis, my my doctors, my whole team of doctors have nothing to offer me in the form of medication because we don't know what's wrong. And all of them are on board with me using cannabis in the meantime. So, I, you know, I needed to do this for myself. I needed to take a break and to kind of get myself to a place where I... I could tell if it was helping or not, because when you're in the midst of, you know, being sick all the time, it's really hard to tell what's helping and what isn't when you have naturally good and bad days. So I needed the break to be able to tell that, yes, I do get significantly worse off of cannabis. So I feel a little bit more calm and comfortable in my use of it again, which is really helpful because it's nice to have something to lean on. I I feel good that I did this experiment and I feel like I need to keep using it. But I just really wanted to share this story because I feel like it, you know, I wanted to illustrate that this is not a simple thing for me and I, it shouldn't be a simple thing for anybody. And, you know, do what works for your body. Don't do things because I am doing them. Um, take ideas from me. Take ideas from all of my guests. That is the intention of this podcast is to share our stories and to talk about what works for us in the hopes that it might work for someone else out there. Not because it is medical advice, but because it is practical uh, knowledge gained through trial and error on our own bodies. So when I have experience that I feel like might be valuable, I'm going to continue to share it, and I hope that it is valuable to someone out there. So I'll definitely keep you updated about my disability application. I got my fingers crossed. I feel like the evaluation went well in the fact that it was very obvious what is going on with my body on that particular day. I really liked the examiner that I had, and she was very um, reasonable and and scientific. And you know, I, I felt like it went really well. So. If I'm going to get disability, I feel like I'm set up the best that I can be to get it, but I also know that most people are denied their first time, so we'll see how that goes. But uh, right now, it's been um, the five-year anniversary of me leaving work, of me being in the midst of this um, medical crisis, I guess you could say, where I've been unable to work. I can't believe it's been five years because you know a lot has happened in that time. I met Andy and I, you know, started this show and I've done so much creatively. So I'm I'm just really trying to keep my my life rich and full even though I'm very limited. I also want to say that uh this last weekend Andy and I went on a little vacation to Long Lake in Olympia. This is a place I'd never been before. It was Andy's birthday and we took a long weekend to celebrate and we stayed in an Airbnb on Long Lake and it's this like Incredible little community, you know. It just feels like a dream when you show up. You just like can see all these cute houses across the lake. We got to go kayaking first thing in the morning every day. And you know, kayaking on the lake, the water was super glassy and beautiful. Just an amazing experience. We had so much fun. We ate so much good food, and it was just wonderful to celebrate my favorite person's birthday. Um, so happy birthday, Andy! And you know, there's just so much joy and life that can be lived even while you are dealing with chronic illness and dealing with chronic pain, um, you know there's just so much that you can still do even though it feels like the walls are closing in and you can't do so much that you used to be able to, there's still new experiences to be had. I'd never been to Long Lake before, it was beautiful, I can't wait to go back someday in the future and it was wonderful to be there with Andy and to celebrate with her. And with that, we're gonna get into our conversation with Laura about social anxiety. Laura, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you, thank you.
0: I'm very excited to talk to you today. We're old friends from high school. (laughs) We reconnected recently, and we've been chatting a bit, and then the idea for this podcast came up, and I'm really excited to get into it. I think that this is a topic that is very pertinent to the world right now, as we're kind of, you know, (laughs) for a second it seemed like we were coming out of COVID, but now we're kind of re-entering COVID in a big, bad way with the Delta variant, so Um, This idea of social interaction and social anxiety is really going to hit home, I hope, to a lot of people, and I'm really excited to talk to you about it.
1: Me too, and I hope somewhere out there it helps somebody.
0: Yeah, for sure. So, Laura, tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: So, I'm from San Diego originally, and I've been here most of my life, um, little breaks, other places, Um, and about 10 years ago, I started grooming dogs. I discovered along the way in my career that I have a knack for nail trimming um, and decided to make it a specialty. So about six years ago, I started a mobile nail trimming business and then slowly phase out of grooming. And so all I do now is nails full time.
0: Yeah. So you just have your own truck and you drive like a van with all your gear in the back. You drive around, you trim dogs, nails, and then you move to the next dog. (laughs)
2: <laughs> Absolutely.
0: So it's so cool cuz it's like you made this business yourself. It's like your own creation and you fully support yourself off of it. It's pretty amazing.
1: Thank you. Um yeah, I didn't really know that this is what it would turn into, but I'm big on why not. Hmm. And so I started as a side business and when it didn't exist yet, I thought either no one's thought of it yet or I'm gonna find out why no one's doing it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's working for you. It's it's so cool. I when we is. talked about this recently. I was so impressed that you have done this whole thing yourself, and it actually supports you. It's pretty amazing. I'm also very impressed you. by your your rock climbing. You were telling me about this right before we started recording. Um, tell us a little bit about your rock climbing. I think it's so cool.
1: So I started rock climbing um, about two years ago, and obviously with a fairly large break during the pandemic, and gyms were closed. Um, and one of my clients is the manager of one of the rock climbing gyms locally. And I was going through, um, a hard time cause I'd just broken up with somebody and, you know, after a breakup, you end up dying your hair, getting some piercing <laughs> tattoo. <laughs> yeah.
0: Buying a um, motorcycle. Yeah.
1: yeah. And so in my case, I am generally very eager to find a new hobby. And so it just kind of worked out perfectly that my client who manages the rock climbing gym was like, Hey, do you want to come rock climbing sometime? And again, heavy on the why not, I was like, Sure. No idea what that was going to even entail. I'd never considered rock climbing before as a hobby, but figured I'd give it a shot. Um, If nothing else, it would get me out of my head for a little bit, out of the house, give me something to do. Um, And so I went and I definitely have a fear of heights. A lot of people say that they don't want to try climbing because they have a fear of heights. Mm -hmm. Um, But spoiler alert, we all do. (laughs)
2: Um,
1: And so I got about halfway up that first wall and was like, what have I done? Um, (laughs) And I was pretty terrified. Um, And what's funny is that of my anxieties, At the time, my social anxiety ranked higher than my fear of heights. Mm. And so, honestly, the only reason I finished that first route was because my client had went through the effort. She'd gone through the effort to Mm. invite me (laughs) and was watching me. And I was like, well, I can't come down now.
0: (laughs) Wow. So your social anxiety um, made you finish this because y- you I know, were isn't
1: that so funny? More
0: anxious to disappoint a person than for your own safety.
1: <laughs> yes. Yes, absolutely. Like and so that really speaks to like how powerful social anxiety is and yeah. how as humans we're so wired to avoid social ostracism. Mm. Like in that moment I was like I would rather die. <laughs>
0: wow. <laughs> yeah, that's so interesting. Well, that leads us really well into this. So, let's let's get into our topic of discussion. Uh, Laura, what is your major pain?
1: My major pain is social anxiety. Um, and I'm really excited to do this podcast because I've come so far with social anxiety that two years ago, I would not have been able to do a podcast on social anxiety. Wow.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we talked about this uh, a couple of months ago. And I was really impressed with your wealth of knowledge about social anxiety itself. Like, you've done a lot of reading and research and a lot of, like, self-work. And, you know, neither of us are medical professionals. We're just people with things that we're trying to live with. But I felt like your perspective on it was really illuminating for me. And I thought that it would be a really valuable thing to share just because you're one of the most knowledgeable people that I've talked to about this thing that we're talking about. So... Yeah, so let's get into it. So, what is social anxiety?
1: So, before I answer what is social anxiety, uh, the reason I know so much about it is because I have general high functioning anxiety. Um, And so, I tend to do deep dives on everything. Hmm. Um, And so, when I found, when I really decided, like, okay, social anxiety is something I want to work on, it's like, how do I do it? And so, I kind of go big or go home on things. Um, And so I'm really happy to be able to share everything I've learned with everyone. Um, And I'll start by saying that social anxiety, it feels like, it feels like fight or flight um, in your body. And I think everyone has experienced fight or flight at some point. Um, And I think for people most I don't know about most people. Honestly, I've realized through all of this that so many people have anxiety, including social anxiety. So many more people than I ever knew. Mm-hmm. So I'm hesitant to say normal people as people who don't ha- have anxiety. Mm. But instead, I will say, ideally, ideally, you only experience fight or flight in situations where your life's actually in danger. Yeah. But with social anxiety, you feel it in maybe some social situations, maybe all situations, kind of depending on on what's personally the most scary for you or to what degree your social anxiety um, affects you. And so for somebody who doesn't have social anxiety, um, imagine a time that you were very scared. So let's think of common fears. So like heights comes to mind um, because that's another one that I have and one that I still struggle with on the daily. Um, you know, some people are afraid of driving, afraid of dogs, um, whatever it is that you personally are afraid of. Spiders, you know, clowns. I was a, I was about to say <laughs> spiders. Um, yeah. imagine feeling that way, but just because you're talking to somebody, or anytime you're in a group, you're at a party, and imagine trying to have a conversation with someone while you're feeling that fear. Um A good amount of your bandwidth is spent on the fear and you have a lot less bandwidth to work on to actually have a conversation. And not only that, you have a lot less bandwidth for the rest of your day, for the rest of your week. So maybe you can't be social as often. And so what's been really interesting for me is I've realized that I'm actually more social and less introverted than I realized Mm. because now that social anxiety isn't so inhibiting for me, I have more bandwidth um and that's been amazing like what a reward
0: yeah and that's just from the like recognizing that you had social anxiety and then starting to research it go on this deep dive and learn tools to manage it and kind of you know give yourself a little bit of a reprieve is that right
1: yeah definitely it feels like i used to have one hand tied behind my back mm. and without that I'm capable of so much more than than I realized. Yeah. It's been a really long time coming. Like I realized I had social anxiety when a friend told me who's a psychologist um in my early 20s and I'm now 36. And so it's it's a long road and you're not ready till you're ready hmm. and I don't want to make it seem like a light switch went off or a light bulb went off and I realized I had social anxiety. I did a bunch of research and I'm done now. Uh, (laughs) It's a long road and it's really, it's never done.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've definitely, I have experienced social anxiety and like I have had moments where it has been crippling, but it is not a constant for me. It's like, uh, you know, like I'll be in a situation and all of a sudden something will make me feel uncomfortable or I will get in my head about how I sounded or something I did and it's like uh it's like a bucket of ice water is just like poured on you like my whole body just kind of tenses up and then I just feel so uncomfortable and anxious and I just want to run away it's like it's that fight or flight thing that you were talking about you know um
2: exactly yeah
0: yeah like def- I've definitely experienced it and I feel like it definitely like got better and better as I got older and got into more social situations or more jobs where I had to be social, like you know working at Starbucks or working as, as a leasing agent. I just had to talk to so many people that I'm like, wow, I can do it. I can talk to people. And it really helped. Um, but I, I, it still happens to me every once in a while. And I feel like COVID has really complicated all of this because all of our social mus- muscles have atrophied because a lot of people, uh, you know, have either been... From the initial lockdown, or um, just like social distancing or social isol- isolation, a lot of our social muscles are not getting exercised the way that they used to, and it's it's not like riding a bike where you can just pick it right back up. You know, you have to kind of like build these um, build these skills back up. So, for someone like you who learned how to do that pre-COVID, who's been working on this for years. I feel like there's a you know I'm really excited to pick your brain about the the specific things that you've done, um, but before we do that, I want to hear a little bit about your particular brand of social anxiety. So, just for you specifically, how did it manifest when you were younger? Like, what, can you give us any um, examples, like specific examples or stories of moments where your social anxiety was particularly crippling?
1: Yes, definitely. Um, and it's so interesting to me that I didn't realize it. Earlier, like looking back and being like, oh. (laughs) And so once I started like doing more of those deep dives and thinking about specific memories, the ones that really stood out were every year I played soccer and at the beginning of the year I'd be put on a new team and I'd have that first practice. And I remember walking from the car towards the group of people that were going to be my team and being absolutely terrified. And like you're saying, like the urge to run away. That's all I wanted to do. I wanted to run away. I wanted to quit. I wanted to go home. I was like, I don't want to play soccer anymore. I don't know why I came. (laughs) Um, But my brothers both played soccer and I kind of hero worshiped them a little bit. And I was like, I want to be like them. I want to play soccer. And I also loved soccer. And part of me knew like, you know, after a few practices, you'll make friends. It'll be okay. But the thing about being in fight or flight is, logic kind of goes out the window, Mm -hmm. um, thinking like, Oh, it's going to be fine. I'll meet friends, things like that. No, nobody cares. Um, (laughs) by nobody, I mean your, your brain, right. Um, well what my friend calls lizard brain. Um, so my lizard brain wanted to run away. It was, it was only through sheer power of will that I kept walking towards that group. You know, again, sometimes one anxiety overrides the other. So fear of disappointing my brothers. Mm. Um, and it's sad to think back and being like, if if someone had known what was going on for me, like, maybe it wouldn't have had to be so hard. Mm. Like, sure, I got through it. I muscled through it. I did it. People do it with social anxiety every day. Um, but it doesn't need to be that hard. And um, that's why I really want to share.
0: Yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of foundational to this podcast is that a lot of us are going through things alone that we don't understand and don't know how to deal with. And it takes years or decades or whatever to make progress sometimes with whatever major pain you're dealing with. And hearing from someone else about how they did it, you know, or like sharing our own experiences of how we made it through to try to make it easier for someone else. Because so so a lot of these things, you know, like, with social anxiety in particular, I feel like I get in my head about what other people are thinking and what they're thinking about me, and I it can become, like, crippling to the point where you can't take action, because you're so worried about what someone else thinks. But for me, I had this moment in my 20s or something, it was like, wow, people probably aren't thinking about me that much, you know? Like, they probably aren't looking at every little thing I'm doing and judging me for it, you know? I'm not doing that to them, so... Why do I think they're doing that to me? And that started to help me like unwind that fear a little bit. And I wish I could go back in time and tell myself, you know, people don't think about you that way, you know, (laughs) like people aren't hyper analyzing you and judging you for every little thing they do that you do. They're like looking at the broader things. And if you're a kind person, you know, people overlook so much, you know?
1: Yeah, I remember being hyper conscious of every single nuance of my body language, Mm. not just like what I was saying. I'm like, am I standing weird? Like, where should, (laughs) like, are my shoulders too far back forward? Like, (laughs) what are my legs doing? Like, is it weird? Should I cross my legs? Like, where, where am I looking? Should I look them in the eye? Should I not? Uh, But that's exactly (laughs) it. I'm constantly, I was just so constantly snowballing. Of like, am I being weird right now? Mm. Um, to where like, you just get weirder (laughs) (laughs) and for a long time, I was medicating, um, with marijuana and thinking that that was bringing down my anxiety so that I could function. Um, and it took probably about eight years for me to realize actually kind of making you weirder. Mm. Um, (laughs) And so uh, my first point of advice to anyone with social anxiety is I know that self-medicating is tempting and it feels like it's something that's helping you, but there's actually a really good chance that it is not.
0: (laughs) Mm, Yeah. Yeah. Tell me more about that.
1: I remember like there was just this moment that I was at the grocery store um, and I was having a lot of anxiety, um, like social anxiety, talking to the cashier. And I was like, God, I feel like I'm being weird right now. And then some, somehow it just clicked where I was like, you're too high. <laughs> and in that, in that moment where I was really high, I was like, wait a minute, isn't being high supposed to help me? Mm. Um, and it just clicked for me that like, you know, maybe at one point it was helping me and it's what I needed to do to get by and to function but like every maladaptive coping mechanism, like it works until it doesn't. Mm. And it was just that moment that I recognized like, this is no longer working for me and I need to figure something else out.
0: Have you tried any other coping mechanisms that are similar to that that were maladaptive, as you say, which is a great word?
1: Um. Yeah, uh, for a bit, I was a workaholic and decided to just You know, use work as like an excuse to be too busy to be social Mm. um, and kind of turning that into an identity for a bit. Um, Which, you know, is, again, both of those are forms of avoidance. Um, First, avoiding feeling my feelings and then avoiding putting myself out there in those social situations. Um, And again, work still doesn't.
0: You said it was a few years ago when you really pinpointed what was going on that you had social anxiety. So what are the first steps after that to try to cope or to try to adapt to it?
1: Um, I've been in therapy off and on throughout my life. um, And each time I'm kind of working on something different. And so there just became a point where I was frustrated enough with social anxiety and I had worked on other things and kind of, taken them out of like the number one, number two spot and social anxiety popped into number one. And so I was like, okay, this is something I really want to work on. I feel like it's inhibiting my function, functioning. It's inhibiting um, what I want to do, where I want to be. The very last thing that kind of pushed that into the number one spot was that I drove about 20 minutes to a meetup group That was a Spanish meetup group that I was really excited about. But up until that point, I always brought a friend with me to everything. So it's like, okay, I have somebody to talk to, um, somebody who can kind of introduce things like topics that they know that I like to facilitate a conversation, um, et cetera. And so I was going to this meetup group and none of my friends were either interested or available. And I was like, okay, like this isn't such a big deal. I can do this. Um, Drove 20 minutes to this meetup group, parked, walked to the restaurant, walked through the restaurant. I saw everybody there at the table and I just kept walking, walked back to my car (laughs) and then drove 20 minutes home. And so I was like, oh, wow, this is actually stopping me from doing things that I want to do with my life. And so that week I was like, all right, I'm going to find a new therapist and really social anxiety um on the front burner as it were and so with therapy uh, i've tried a bunch of different types and the type that's been most helpful for me with social anxiety is working on core beliefs and so core beliefs are things that you believe deep down about yourself Hmm. and you might not even logically think these things but you believe them and so figuring out what those core beliefs were for me, and how they influenced social anxiety has been an absolute game changer.
0: Wow. Yeah, I'd love to hear more about that. And I know that we're getting into some personal stuff. So whatever you feel comfortable sharing is great. Um, but if you're able to give me examples of core beliefs, either yours or, or someone else's, so we can know a little bit about what you're talking about, that'd be great.
1: Yeah, um, I'm pretty comfortable sharing them. Um, I think the more I've gotten into this, I also have learned that these core beliefs are actually less personal than they felt originally because they're beliefs that so many people struggle with. And so knowing that actually makes me more comfortable sharing them. Um, I think a lot of us struggle with chronic feeling of unlovability. You feel like there's just something wrong with you. Um, You don't necessarily know what it is, but something. Another one that was really hard for me was feeling like people would leave me when they got to know me. Mm. So regardless of whether that's a friendship, a relationship, any any relationship in your life, I'm mean, just like the real me, which goes back to the unlovability, the real me is unacceptable mm. for some or another. And as long as I'm pretending to be someone I'm not, people will like me. But if I act like the person I really am, that people are going to discover my secret, that there's something wrong with me and they're going to leave. And so part of this ties into anxious attachment, which is a topic for another day. (laughs) Um, But those are two that I definitely saw how they related to social anxiety. Um, Another one was basing my self-worth on my value to other people rather than having intrinsic value. Um, And then another was that I'm either too much or not enough. Um, and all of these are both separate and one piece. They each kind of connect to the other And so these are just my examples of what feeds into me having social anxiety and um, some other people might have different ones um, but drilling down to those is what finally started to to unravel social anxiety as something that was holding me back.
0: I, I know exactly what you're talking about like a lot of us have this feeling, especially maybe when we're younger that, that there's something, you know, that needs to be changed about us in order for us to be acceptable to other people. Or like, you know, instead of trying to be yourself, you try to be what you see around you so that you'll fit in better. And that is just exhausting. And then you end up in relationships that you don't necessarily even enjoy, because you're being a fake version of you in these relationships. And to do that long term is impossible. So, yeah, I mean that's always so like, you know, when you're first dating someone or something like that, it's like, well, I got to sh- put my best foot forward and show them the best version of me. Um, but you don't show them the real you. And then like, you know, months or years later, the real you eventually will come out. And then, you know, what do you do then? Cuz you've built a relationship off of dishonesty in a way. And it's not like you're trying to lie, it's just that in a way you're kind of lying to yourself about who you are and what you want. Totally.
1: Yeah. And like realizing that made me kind of change my point of view about whether I wanted to continue to be someone I'm not to get liked or loved because if someone likes me for who I'm not, they don't actually like me.
0: Yeah. Um, They don't know you.
1: Right. Right. And I'm like, wait, do I want to be liked for who I'm not or for who I am? Yeah. Um, and when that clicked, that really made a huge difference. I would rather be letting people not like me be a filter for, like, are these my people rather than trying to fit in where I don't belong?
0: Totally. Is part of this learning to be okay with people not liking you?
1: Yeah. And just kind of accepting. (laughs) So, yeah, that's uh, the big question, isn't it? Um, A big thing for me figuring that out was thinking like, finding your tribe
0: yeah
2: as it were totally
1: and not everyone's going to be your person your people and that's okay my therapist said once to me like what's what's the worst thing that happens if somebody likes you why is it what's so bad about somebody not liking you and it was one of those times where I was kind of mad at him because I'm like I don't have an answer for that (laughs) um (laughs) and so like It was one of those, okay, I'm going to have to chew on this and come back to you later. What are the consequences that are so terrible about somebody not liking you? Eventually, I did just like sink into actually another question that he said. If somebody doesn't like you, like, do you still like them and why? Mm. And if they don't like you, like, why do you care? like think of somebody you don't like, do you care what they think of you? And I was like, yeah. (laughs) 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 And then like, the more you think about it, you're like, wait, why is that? I just slowly learned really with, with practice that if someone doesn't like me, like they're not for me as my therapist would ask me these questions. um, Things for me to think about if I didn't have an immediate answer. Uh, I was also doing a lot of journaling and writing about things that, happened during my week that maybe a social situation that gave gave me anxiety and trying to figure out which of my core beliefs maybe had to do with that anxiety. As I was going week to week, I was also doing different exposures, um, which if someone's not familiar with exposures, um, it's exposing yourself to things that cause you Anxiety or fear, and doing them in small increments. And so, starting with something that's a little less scary, and as you get more comfortable, moving your way up towards more and more scary things. Um, The alternative of that, in psychological terms, is called flooding, and that tends to be a lot less effective. Um, And really, it's more likely to increase your fear rather than decrease it. And so, that would be putting yourself in like the scariest situation you can imagine and just thinking like muscle through it. Um, just do it. Um, and the just do it mentality is really just not effective. Um, and I know that I was saying like with soccer, when I was young, that I would just do it and I would get through it and eventually I would be better, but it didn't make social anxiety any better. Mm -hmm. If anything, I think it made it worse. I really think that slow controlled exposures is the way to go as much or as little as you're ready to do as often as you're willing to do it. Um, and then kind of exploring how you felt.
0: Um, What's an example of a, of a slow controlled exposure for social anxiety.
1: Uh, so I really wanted to get better at taking fitness classes, but fitness classes were kind of scary to me. Cause I'm like, like you were talking about, like everybody's watching me. Um, I'm going to be the new person. I don't know what I'm doing. And so a friend suggested Pilates to me, um, because you're laying on your back, you're on this thing called a reformer. Um, nobody can see you. Mm. Nobody can see what you're doing. (laughs) Um, and, uh, at first it was, it was still a little scary to me because I'm going to a place I've never been to before. I'm doing an activity I've never done before, but it was a great idea. Like you're on your back, nobody can see you. Um, and so that was my first exposure and I just started doing, Pilates more often, and as I got comfortable, I would try out a new studio. I ended up going to like five different studios, trying like every pil- like large chain Pilates studio in the city. <laughs> um, which also there's a financial incentive to do first week deals.
2: Oh yeah, there um, you go.
1: <laughs> yeah, and so uh, I'll take whatever incentives I can I can get uh, yeah. to get me to do things that are uncomfortable. If it's saving money, great. Um, so yeah, that was, that was my first, uh, real practice exposure. And the more I did that, obviously, like, like I was saying, the more confident I got and the more willing I was to take scarier exposures.
0: Yeah. Um, You're, you're making me remember things. Like when I moved to Seattle, I really wanted to try yoga, but I was so scared because I'd never done it before. And I'm just like, people are going to be looking at me funny the whole time. And I finally went and did it and, you know, you're all in the same room together, but you're all, everyone is just so focused on their own bodies, you know, and on what they're doing. Like, I don't think anyone was looking at me, you know, I think everyone was just like, focused on themselves. And I, I quickly realized that, you know, I was just focusing on myself in the mirror to make sure that my poses were correct and that I wasn't, you know, doing anything the wrong way or whatever. Um, And, like, the teacher would come around, the teacher was looking at all of us, but that was really the only person who was looking at everyone. And they're trained to do that, you know? Right, It was a much more comfortable situation than I expected, and I did it for years, and I loved it so much. And, you know, if my body weren't in, you know, doing unexplained, mysterious things where my legs don't work as well, I'd still be doing it. So, yeah, I mean just getting out there and trying something is often less frightening than the idea of doing it and getting yourself across the first hurdle to actually do it is the hardest part.
1: Totally. And I will take the smallest hurdles that I can take. Um, And that is so totally okay for anyone who is out there listening and thinks that their progress is too slow. Go as slow as you want. Like. The point is that eventually you'll get to where you want to be going, and if your comfort level is slow, don't beat yourself up about it.
0: Totally, yeah. And any any progress is good, you know. And exactly. even if you even if you try something and fail, that's still progress because you tried. the The only yeah. time where you're not making progress is if you don't attempt to do anything.
1: That's absolutely my mindset now. Um, yeah. Both with social anxiety. And what I do more often than anything now, which is climbing. Yeah. Like I am struggling with fear of heights. I feel much better at the end of the day if I jumped for a hold and I missed it than if I were too afraid to jump.
0: Yeah, um, totally.
1: Apart from fitness, before I go back to talking about climbing, which is going to be a big thing, <laughs> um, another thing that really helped me was meetup groups because I realized, like. As you're thinking about social anxiety and you're trying to ferret out like what makes you the most anxious, think also about when you're the least anxious. Um, and so I would think about like if I were at a party and someone's talking to me about like something I don't know a lot about or something I don't find interesting or the worst, small talk, Um, I would find myself very, very anxious. But if somebody asked me about my work or something I was passionate about, something I felt like I knew a lot about and was confident about, it was like I was a different person almost. And by different person, I mean I was me. Um, I wasn't all this anxiety, stories I'm telling about myself. Like I was just relaxed and me. And so for me, anybody who wanted to talk about dogs, I'd talk about dogs all day. Um, and so I realized, like, why don't I take advantage of those situations where I feel the least amount of anxiety, and and try to create more of those situations for practice? And so I started going to meetup groups, um, not specifically about dogs at the time, but meetup groups for languages I speak, um, which is also like like I talked about before how I couldn't do in the beginning. That's kind of what led me. To wanting to do more meetup groups. I was like, okay, like that first time didn't work, but it's really important to me. I want to be able to go to these. Um, and so I went to a number of them. Um, and I just, even though I tried and failed that first time, um, I was like, I'm going to keep putting these on my calendar. I'm going to, you know, like we're talking about small incremental steps, I'm at least going to park my car. I'm going to walk in the restaurant, walk in wherever. Um, and even if i don't make it this time i'm going to go as many steps as i can and i'm going to call it a win and yeah, so that's awesome i went back to how i used to have friends come with me to things um take a friend meet a couple people and then the next time try to go by myself um and then after that uh i started actually going to meet up groups by myself which was crazy to me um <laughs> And some of this, the timeline is a little bit jumbled because we're talking about different things rather than um, in linear format. But it was kind of after the successes with Pilates that I started being able to feel like I go to meetup groups on my own. And so I went to one for Portuguese. I went to one for being child free by choice. Went to one for people who like board games, um, like anything.
0: Wow. Um, I didn't even know these existed. Oh, they do, um, <laughs>
1: which is the beauty of meetup groups. And hopefully more and more of these are going to start back up. And I know that advice was pre-pandemic, which is not always relevant now. Um, but, but like you said, like more things are opening up. Hopefully they'll continue to do so. Um, and so those were like the two entry points to me into exposures, exposures, um, fitness and meetup groups. Um, If you're not into fitness, that one's obviously not going to apply to you. But I think meetup groups is pretty universal since everyone with social anxiety is trying to be more social. Um, And so I would really recommend finding something that you like, something that you know the Mm -hmm. other people there are also going to like. You have it in common and you already have something to talk about because the scariest thing to me with social anxiety is like, what do I talk about?
0: Yeah, Um, that's huge. Yeah, this is so interesting because – I just, you got me thinking about my own behavior now. (laughs) Uh Oh,
1: welcome to to the club where we overanalyze everything we do. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And like my social anxiety was a lot worse when I was younger. And, you know, after moving to Seattle, I was like in this new city where I didn't know anyone and I was kind of nervous about meeting people. But I always felt like whenever people started talking about movies, I was always more comfortable, you know, like- just hanging out and talking about what we've watched on TV. That's my comfort zone. Um, and that's why I started a sci-fi podcast back in the day was that I wanted an excuse to talk about my favorite thing with people where it's like, <laughs> I'm inviting you over to talk about science fiction. Is that cool? <laughs> Cause that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to record it. We're going to put it out.
2: Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah.
0: It was like, that was kind of my own excuse to have conversations about something that I was comfortable with. Um, and I realized, you know, relatively recently that that was kind of a crutch for me, you know, talking about TV and movies with people instead of talking about real stuff or real life or, um, you know, like what, what what's going on in your life and stuff like that because that could get scary or uncomfortable or whatever. I'd always just want to talk about movies. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Although, as we're talking about exposures for social anxiety highly encouraged (laughs) just talk about movies talk about whatever you like yeah totally eventually the deeper stuff will come
0: yeah you know finding finding the thing that you can talk about is the hardest part so like that's what you're saying is you know go somewhere where people are expecting to talk about something that you like and you have a jumping off point um yeah and another tool for that that i have learned is people love talking about themselves So if you just like, if you're feeling uncomfortable, ask someone about themselves and keep going until you find something that you're interested in and then share what you're interested in about the thing that they shared about. Like, that's a tool that I like learned at some point that has really served me well.
1: Yes, I agree. However, for people with crippling social anxiety, we cannot think of questions to ask
0: people. It's really Mm, hard. Okay. Interesting. Yeah.
1: And, and I am not ashamed to admit that before socialing situations, I will sometimes make a list of questions that I want to ask people and yeah. do like work where I'm like, what question? Cause when I'm in the moment, I'm like, God, I have no questions. I have no idea what I want to know about this person. Even if it's like a specific person who I am genuinely curious about, like in the moment, I just can't think of those questions. Sure. And so um, even though like, You know, when you have social anxiety, you tend to want to judge it and you want to just like wish it away. Um, You know, sometimes you have to cater to it. And if that means prepping before a social situation, because you just you know you're going to be anxious and accept that you're going to be anxious. And if that means planning ahead and writing lists of questions and trying to memorize it. Go for it. Like, <laughs> do what you have to do because the more you try to pretend you don't have social anxiety or wish it away or judge yourself for having it, the less progress you're going to make trying to get past it.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point because I, I feel like the idea of not knowing what to say is really anxiety inducing the idea of like being in a room and no one's speaking and you have to like prompt someone to speak and having no idea what to say. That's a really uncomfortable moment. And if that is your anxiety and your fear, when you're in that moment, I can only imagine that amplifying and you're just like, I've got nothing. I got nothing to say.
1: <laughs> totally. And like since social anxiety is essentially fight or flight, when you're in fight or flight, like your brain, your lizard brain, as it were is, Cannot think of questions to ask people. <laughs> right. It's just, it's too late.
2: Totally. <laughs> um, all,
1: all you want to do is run away. Yeah. Uh, and so I will legitimately, if I feel like I'm going to be anxious, just plan ahead for it. Um, and not just with like prepping myself for what I think I might want to say. I don't have to do this all the time anymore, which is really nice. Um, but I definitely did when I was doing exposures. Um, also, just kind of really paying attention to everything that either helps or makes your anxiety worse. And so I realized that if I'm not getting enough sleep, mm. I have more social anxiety. Um, or if I've not had enough hikes, um, like the more I'm out in nature, I feel like the more that calms my nervous system. Um, and also I recommend people look more into, into regulating their nervous system Feel like that's a big thing that has helped me. I know for a lot of people, meditation helps. Um, I'm still not there yet. Like I love the idea of meditation, but sitting still and just being alone with my thoughts is still something that's that I feel like is not quite where I'm at. Yeah. Um, and so part of regulating your nervous system is breathing, and so I do practice breathing. I want to say I'm not that great at it, but I'm still technically alive. And so I feel like I'm not, I'm not like the worst at it. What what do you mean
0: by practicing breathing, like specific breathing exercises?
1: Like deep breathing in a way that calms you Mm -hmm. rather than like the shallow chest breathing that people with anxiety, I think are especially prone to. Mm -hmm. Um, So just paying attention to your breathing because the way you breathe is telling your nervous system if you're okay. Um hmm.
0: and wow. so that's so interesting.
1: You can consciously use your breath to try to tell your body that you're okay. Um, and, you know, it's not like we can change our heart rate consciously um, or a number of other things about our nervous system, but breathing is one thing that we really are in control of.
2: Hmm. And
1: so I've tried to make it my first reaction now when I'm feeling anxious How's your breathing? Check in with your breathing. And so, see, I'm doing it right now. Um, <laughs> now I'm doing it too. See, everybody's thinking about breathing. Um, and you've so, you've accepted
0: the entire audience.
1: <laughs> and so, I noticed that, like, when I'm out in nature, I'm doing very deep, slow breaths. Um, and obviously, when I'm hiking, they're maybe a little quicker breaths. They're maybe a little bit more difficult to, to breathe deeply. Um, but it's when I'm conscious of my breath and when my breath is most at ease. And a calm nervous system means that you can handle more perceived threats and that your threshold before you feel that something is a threat is a lot higher. Yeah. And so, with social anxiety for me I know that if I haven't slept a lot that week and I'm tired and I try to go to a party which is like one of the harder things for me I'm really good at one-on-one situations now um, but the larger the group is and the more noise there is the more small talk there's going to be that's like just kind of ups the ante of how hard it's going to be for me and so now I know, like. To set myself up for success, I need to make sure I get enough sleep, I need to make sure that I've been out in nature, I need to make sure that my nervous system starts from a low level of calm, which is what's called a regulated nervous system, because then I'm not going to be so quick to perceive something as a threat. And when I say perceive something as a threat, I mean, someone looked maybe like they weren't interested in what i said and it's all about my perceptions it's not necessarily about what somebody actually does or does not do do it's kind of irrelevant honestly um but you know (laughs) like somebody looks at their phone because they got a text and you're like oh are they actually looking at their phone like all of these stories that your brain can tell you
0: oh my god they're so bored listening to me that they're distracted by their phone yeah i have whenever someone looks at their phone when i'm talking to them my anxiety spikes immediately
1: Right, right. There's so many triggers like that. And like, if I'm calm, and my nervous system is regulated, I'm much more likely to think they got a text from somebody and they just need to look at it versus like, oh, they're bored. Um, And so, you know, we've all got those stories that we tell ourselves. And there's this gap between what you logically know is an alternative possibility versus like, what you feel to be true. Mm -hmm. And I'm much more likely to believe those alternative possibilities than like the feeling I jump to, which again goes to core beliefs of like they're bored. They don't like me, like, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This like long, never ending story that you have about yourself in your head. And Mm so that's my, my other big point of advice: set yourself up for success by setting your nervous system up for success.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. This is, you have so many well-thought out things that are so interesting to think about, because you know even if you don't have social anxiety, we all exist in society, and we all have to interact with other people sometimes, and so much of this you know so much of this is applicable, even if you aren't anxious in those situations. Just by being aware of the fact that you know what you think is happening isn't necessarily what's happening. Like what you think people are thinking has no bearing on what they're thinking unless you ask them and they confirm it. This is yes, you know, Something I was just talking about with uh, Fowler recently, and you haven't heard this episode yet because it as we're recording this one that hasn't come out. Um, but you know, Laura actually knows Fowler from back in the day. We all used to hang out and go to parties together, <laughs> uh, pool parties at Fowler's house, but
1: parties where i was high so that i could go to a party
0: yeah and you brought a friend i always i remember you always brought a friend with you
1: every time sometimes my dog but anytime it was somebody for sure
0: yeah yeah and we also you know we were a bunch of weirdos like our our friend group was not the cool kids we were like (laughs) we were the people that just didn't necessarily know how to be but enjoyed being around each other you know which is important. Yeah, that's important. It's like fi- that whole finding your tribe thing. Like find people that make you comfortable. Um, yeah,
1: and people who like you for you.
0: Exactly. Yeah. So, what other tips do you have for us about things that you've done to manage your social anxiety?
1: So, in the same vein as finding your tribe, um, I know when I was talking about climbing uh, before, I talked about my first introduction to climbing. Um, and that scenario that's or that day rather that's not the day I fell in love with climbing um so it's the day I first experienced climbing and experienced the fear of heights um got through the day went home and honestly was like well I did that um had no plans to go climbing again um and about a month later Uh, one of my friends, uh, her birthday was coming up and she's like, hey, you know how you went climbing last month? I really want to go climbing. Do you think like your client could get us into the gym? Um, And I was like, yeah, probably. Um, And so I asked her, she said, yes. Um, Me and two of my friends went to the gym to go climbing. Um, And that day it was different. Like I was comfortable. I was with two of my best friends. Um, Felt a little bit more comfortable in the fact that I've been to that gym once before and it just felt like more like we were just fucking around and so one of my friends uh was like hey did you see there's a summer membership we can get two months for this price do you want to do it and like again my sense of why not kicked in um not so much because I was like dying to climb but I was like this would be a really fun thing for me to do with my two friends for the next two months and so we all signed up um, we all started going two or three times a week and in that two months, I just fell in love with climbing, but I've actually realized now over time that making climbing a part of my life has affected social anxiety with all of these, these different small pieces that mm. it's, it's actually, it's amazing to me how many benefits are mentally to climbing. Cause I think so many people think of it as just another physical sport, Um, and I know that not everyone listening to this is going to be able to just go get into rock climbing, um, for a number of reasons having to do with accessibility and interest. Um, and so this is just what's worked for me. And I think there's elements of it that would transfer to other activities. Um, and I know that some people have found, um, found similar benefits in yoga or like crafting things like that. Um, And so the big points that I've learned from this experience that have to do with social anxiety are finding people that are your tribe, um, people that, in this case, what I love, people that are not judgmental, people that have similar values to me, similar interests, Um, finding something that's meditative and a problem to solve. And and physical,
0: Like you're using your body, some sort of physical competency. Like for me, I feel like this is kayaking, you know, which I've rediscovered recently. Um, Andy and I just went kayaking last week and uh, with some of her family. And it was incredible. It's my first time ever going kayaking in the Pacific Northwest. Like we went in Tahoe recently. I was like, wow, I love kayaking. Why have I not done this recently? And just, there's something meditative about being out on the water. There's something physical about, you know, it's obviously, it's a physical activity. Um, and just feeling like you're doing something with your body and doing it well, that like talk about regulating your nervous system, like that gives you something that you can take with you and carry with you. And I feel like you know crafting that's a great one, like knitting or something like that. I know people that listen to this show are all over the um, the all over the spectrum as far as you know accessibility is concerned. But whatever situation you're in, there is something that you can find or try or do. Um it's just about getting creative and finding the thing that works for you. So like climbing is your thing, but obviously I'm not going to go climbing.
2: <laughs> exactly. Um,
0: yeah, and that's okay, you know, but the the benefit that you get from it sounds similar to what I feel when I go kayaking or go like for a roll in my wheelchair or something out out in nature. Totally. Yeah.
1: You're getting into your body and out of your mind. And Yeah,
0: that's it. Yeah. So
1: much of social anxiety is just being in your head. Yeah. Um, And I thought of crafting because we're on Zoom right now and no one can see, but you have this beautiful crocheted blanket behind you. (laughs)
2: Um,
1: And so I'm imagining the same focus that I put into climbing of like, okay, where is this next movement going to be? How do I get through this problem? Um, I think that that same kind of focus and planning and problem solving can go into a lot of different activities. Absolutely. Um, So the more you're in your body and out of your, your head, the better. And I don't want to focus too much on like aptitude, because Mm. I don't think that that's helpful. Um, I think more likely to have someone with anxiety, judge themselves farther. And so even if you're not good at it, like your crafts can be ugly, um, your climbing can be poor form. Um, if it gives you the mental benefits that far outweighs how good your art is or how well you're physically performing at something.
0: Totally. Um, yeah. It's not, you're not doing it for any other reason than the meditative nature of it. I mean, even yes. like playing video games, you know, like whenever my brain hurts, I, I'll like grab a video game and I get out of my head and into my body, into my hands, you know, yeah. I, I'm, I like to play games that I don't have to think about where I'm just kind of, you know, my hands know what to do and my brain can just shut down for a while. And yeah. that feels very meditative to me and feels like a really great way to recharge the brain batteries.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you also have the aptitude aptitude for something, that's obviously going to be more ideal because then you get extra benefits of building confidence. Um,
2: yeah.
1: And the more confidence you have in one area, I feel like you can transfer that to confidence as a whole. And the more confidence you have, the lower your anxiety is going to be. Um, but I definitely wanted to mention like, that I don't want to focus too much on aptitude,
0: but yeah. more so I agree how to with fix that. your attitude. I totally agree with that. Like, especially if someone is going through some sort of like chronic health challenge where they have where their abilities have changed. You yeah. know, like for me, uh, for example, for me, um, I <laughs> used to feel like when I was doing stuff like surfing or kayaking, or whatever, I had to always be getting better at it.
2: Yeah, like yeah. H-
0: hold myself to that standard of always be getting better and now i've realized like that's not helpful at all like all right? w- the thing that's helpful is to hold yourself to doing it you know
2: yes you don't yes. need to
0: go further every time you don't need to do better every time like the things that i learned you know in like band when i played in marching band in high school it's like every time you um Every time you get on this field and we do this marching band routine, you need to be a little bit more precise than the time before. And you're always getting better. And every day when you eat your breakfast in the morning, just think about how can I eat this cereal better than the day before? Like this is stuff that, you know, my band director used to talk about and I really internalized it to my whole life. It's like, how can I always be improving? But that's exhausting. And sometimes like when you're dealing with health challenges or anything like that, you can't improve. And holding steady or being okay with doing worse, but just doing it is the important thing. Just like getting out there and doing it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's tough.
1: And like, since like you're talking about how it's kind of like something that society has drilled into us. I think that's another reason that a lot of us have really similar core beliefs. And so one of my core beliefs of like my value, not being intrinsic and my value being based on my productivity, my ability, um, like almost like transactional rather than just for being myself. Hmm. That's exactly why I don't want to focus on aptitude because it just further fuels that core belief rather than trying to undo it and work towards humans having intrinsic value.
0: Yeah, totally. Yeah. Like when you're out in the woods, you know, you feel sort of at one with the life of the world, you know, and it, it exists and it's alive and it's beautiful and that's enough. And you enough. appreciate
2: that. Yeah. yeah.
0: And you're a part of that and you you are that too. And we're right. all completely disconnected from that because we're also focused on productivity. And you know, the COVID lockdown it I think was really hard for a lot of people who were productivity fo- focused because all of a sudden you can't be productive and if your sense of self is tied into your occupation or your productivity, it was it almost felt like your sense of self was ripped away for a lot of people. And right. that's really, really hard to deal with. And learning how to kind of like get up in the morning and self-motivate and be okay with being yourself and existing is really, really hard. Um, right. Yeah. But, you know, out in the woods, the trees and the squirrels, they're doing that every day. <laughs> <They're>
1: just <hanging laughs> that's just out. how they live, they- man.
0: You know, mm-hmm. they're just hanging out. Um, and they're
1: beautiful and we love them for that.
0: Yeah. And we, why can't we love ourselves for that?
1: Right. Yeah. Exactly.
0: So so, what's your next tip for, for learning to live with social anxiety?
1: Uh, so I touched on it a little bit before of just accepting that you have anxiety. Um, it's like a little uh, takeaway from Buddhism of which I am not a Buddhist, but I've picked up little things here and there that I found helpful. And the biggest thing is uh, resistance is suffering. And so the more you try to resist anxiety, like the worst it's going to get because, you know, now you're just, you're even more in your head. Oh God, I'm having anxiety. You're judging yourself for having anxiety and you're like, ugh, I'm the worst. Why do I struggle with
2: this?
1: (laughs) Um, and so instead just kind of be like, I'm a person that struggles with anxiety. That's okay. It's going to be there. It's going to be like my annoying little tag along sibling. That's just behind me. Um, you know, my mom made me bring them, whatever. Um, and you know, the more you accept it, the more I've actually found that I'm also able to talk about it and like make jokes about it. Um, instead of pretending it's not there, I'm just like, you know what, whatever I have anxiety. Um, <laughs> you know, sometimes I'll, just be feeling anxious and I'll just say it, like name it. Um, and what I have found while while doing that is that so many people have anxiety you're not alone totally and and like a benefit I didn't even expect from that is that then you have one more thing that you can bond over with people something else you have in common you can talk about it um and being like man I have this special bond with this person now because we talked about something that you know mental health struggles so many people are are afraid to talk about because our culture doesn't want you to to talk about, you know, there's taboo, there's shame. Um, But you're like, I just bonded over something that's kind of like, we're told to be ashamed of with this person. And it's a, it's a more special bond than like, are you talking about talking about movies to not talk about something deep? Like movies are great. Like, you know, you like the same movies, that's cool. But I've found like the beginnings of some really deep relationships the last few years with like other people that struggle with anxiety And then like, there's just one benefit after another from each of these steps. And then you have someone that you can talk to about anxiety when you're feeling it and like share your successes with too, you know, like be like, oh, this happened to me. I was feeling this way. Um, And so every little piece kind of builds on the next one. And so if you do have anxiety, I really, really recommend you accept that you have anxiety. Don't try to fight it Mm -hmm. and then talk about it. Let it be there. And you'll find that a lot of other people have
0: anxiety too. Yeah, I think a theme running through a lot of these um, tips is learning to accept yourself as you are, instead mm-hmm. of trying to change who you are. And part of who you are is having social anxiety, and that's okay. Exactly. You know, yeah, and like you said, like so many people do, um, and there is so much social stigma around it, which is ridiculous. Like, why are we stigmatizing something that so many people? Are dealing with because then when you have to like hide it it gets worse so we're just like forcing people into this stupid cycle of of being uncomfortable and and not feeling like they fit in and you know it's just also futile you know
1: it's such a human thing too to have anxiety about because like i was talking about how i would rather fall off a wall then and die then be socially ostracized granted obviously that was some very black or white thinking and some jumping to conclusions um but the the desire to fit in is wired into us as humans and so of course the threat of not fitting in is going to be really really scary to a lot of us and so you're judging yourself for something that is wired into your brain yeah it's not you it's just, it's something that you experience.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, that whole resistance is suffering thing is interesting because I think some of us like want to fit in in places that we, that aren't a good fit for us, you know? Yeah. Like if you don't know yourself very well and you're like, I want to, you know, fit into this cool crowd. And you can. Yeah, kind of, that's
1: high school right yeah, there. Yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah. You like conform yourself to try to fit into this thing that isn't you. And then you kind of lose a sense of yourself along the way, um, like that can be really dangerous for your overall emotional well-being. Um, but it's something that we, I think, we all kind of feel at one point or another. It's like, you know, that's the cool kids crowd, and I want to be accepted by them to know that I'm cool. Instead of right. being like, you know, what I don't even like these people. <laughs> I, I <laughs> totally. every time I talk to them, I have a horrible time. Not to say that all cool kids are awful. You know, I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that. Um, like, cool is com- is a construct. It's relative. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. relative. We made it up. It doesn't necessarily mean anything. I think, what I think is cool is someone learning who they are and being themselves. Like, I think being the most yourself you can be is awesome. The people that I know who have, like, who are the most unique individuals, I think that's the coolest thing. I think trying to conform yourself to be like something else is inherently sort of uncool. But that's just my opinion, you know, and- it's all, like we just said, it's all made up, so it doesn't matter. <laughs>
1: yeah, and I think the older we get, the more we all naturally start to realize this, of like, this is more so the meaning of life. Like, this is this is what makes life great. Um, figuring out who you are, figuring out who your people are, and then just enjoying yourself. Um, It's like you're saying, like if you're hanging out trying to be someone you're not with people you don't even like, you're not having a good time. And I think for those of us that have spent a lot of time trying to fit in where we don't belong and you're saying like you lose touch with who you are, like when someone says like, oh, just go be yourself, find your people, you might not even know who you are at that point um, or where you fit in or who your people are. And so I invite anyone who's struggled with that to to just explore, Um, you know, try new things, meet new people, um, pay attention to how you feel in your body, your nervous system, like who makes me feel good? Where do I feel the most calm? Where do I feel like, um, like the most like me? Mm. And over time, I think you'll start to get more of a sense of who me is. Um, And so that's really what I found with the climbing community of like, Wow, I feel like I belong here. Um, and there's plenty of other situations, and you know, square peg and round hole situations that I've tried to put myself in where I didn't belong, and finally finding a place where I really do feel like I belong. Um, that's just been such a big piece to to being myself, and it, then it becomes like a really positive feedback loop um, mm. to where. I start being more myself, people are attracted to me as my actual self, I get reinforcement, like I'm a likable person, which makes me more myself, etc, etc, etc. And so like, one thing I found when I was first researching is like, if you want people to love you, you have to love yourself. And I was like, well, I'm not gonna do that. Um, and so I don't feel like that's very helpful advice, but it's advice that's out there a lot. Um, and eventually I found something that said like, this is crap. Like sometimes you need to see it to believe it. And you need to see like someone that loves you for you to believe you're lovable. And there's nothing wrong with that. Like saying, love yourself before others will love you. It's just like another
0: way to blame yourself for
1: not being enough. Oh wow. um,
0: Interesting. I haven't heard that put that way before.
1: And, and it's so counterproductive. And like, mm. if you're ever evaluating whether something um, is something you should be trying to do, um, be like, did that work? Was it helpful? Like if it's not throw it away. Yeah. So if love yourself before someone else will love you is not helpful to you, throw away that entire concept don't keep trying um of like there's something wrong with me like I'm gonna fix this I'm gonna love myself um yeah and so for me like that positive feedback loop it had to start somewhere and it didn't start with me
0: wow Wow. Oh, that's so interesting because you know I'm a big RuPaul's Drag Race fan and at the end of every episode Ru always says you know if you don't love your, if you can't love yourself, how, the, how are you going to love somebody else or something like that? And it's so common. Yeah, it's very common. And I think that there is, I think the part of it that is helpful is that loving yourself is important, you know? Yes. And, but what you're saying that I had never thought about before is that that statement is conditional that, you know, that if you can't love your, if you don't love yourself, then you are not ready to receive love, which. Yeah. Yeah. Therefore, therefore, you, you don't, don't deserve, deserve it. it. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there is that is sort of harmful. I, I hadn't thought about that before. Or it could be internalized as harmful. Like it could work for some people and not for others. Like this is not yeah something which that is has why to be, I say
1: if it's not helpful, throw it
0: out. Exactly. Like it, if, it does if it's help helpful, great. then great. Yeah. This there's no right or wrong to to this. It's just you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, there, I think that we can all agree that self love is an important thing. But how, however you get there, as long as you get there, it doesn't matter. Yes, And if you're not getting exactly. there, then there is something that you can adjust to make it easier for yourself to get there. I always talk about like tricking myself into being happy, where I kind of like <laughs> set myself up for things to like, no matter what happens, to have joy in some way or another. Um, And I, I I, feel like a lot of these tips that you've shared and tools that you've shared are are sort of along those lines of like, if you aren't happy, like, what can you do to set yourself up for happiness? And, yep. you know, I think that, I mean, you shared so many awesome tips. Do you have more? I know you like, taken some notes and you've prepared, which is so exciting. Um, do you have oh, more tips or did we hit the end of the list?
1: Uh, let's see. Um, yes, as someone with anxiety, I definitely did write out a list and make a plan. <laughs> so, my last one is another thing that uh, one of my friends who likes Buddhism told me. Um, And it's that the world is imperfect, impersonal, and impermanent. There's two things that I was really able to take from that. Um, Depersonalizing how other people respond to me and treat me. um, And realizing that sometimes that has more to do with them than it does with me. Um, And letting go of the illusion of control. A lot of what goes into having anxiety is wanting to control things because they're less scary if you can control them. Mm -hmm. Um, but control is an illusion. If the world is imperfect and impermanent, like things are just not always going to be the way that you'd like them to be. And nothing's ever going to stay the same for better or for worse. Um, and so, I can't control how other people feel about me at the end of the day, no matter how hard I try and no matter how perfect I think I'm being at conversation or who I think I'm presenting myself to be, no matter what I do, I cannot control how someone else feels about me. Um, And me trying to control that it at very like best case scenario, it just, leads to a lot of anxiety on my part that I'd rather not have to struggle with. Worst case scenario, it might actually backfire on me. You maybe just, by not being yourself, like let a possible new friendship go because they would have connected with you as who you actually are. Mm -hmm. Um, But by trying to be someone you're not, you know, you're just, you're doing a disservice to yourself. My last piece of advice, let go of the illusion of control that anxiety wants you to have because you have none. (laughs) And although that sounds scary, if you really lean into it, it's absolutely liberating. Just things are the way they are. They're going to be the way they are. What's meant for you will come to you. What leaves you was not meant for you. And that's the beauty of life.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Something that's really helped me along those lines is recognizing that the things that you had in the past – even though they might not exist now, you still had them, you know? Like, I think about, you know, my dog Miles. Like, we had this amazing 17-year relationship together, and he's not around anymore. And to keep myself from falling into this hole of like, oh my God, I can't believe my dog has died, I just focus on celebrating the time we had um, instead of focusing on the fact that that time is over. Because as you get older, you recognize that more, you know, there's always going to be something new. Things are always going to end and there's always going to be new beginnings and getting stuck in what you wish you had isn't helpful. Um, but celebrating the things that you used to have, it can be really cathartic, even if they don't exist anymore. So let, letting, letting go of that control of, you know, wanting things to be permanent that aren't because nothing, yeah. nothing is. Yeah, um, and, learning, and wanting
1: things to be different.
0: Yeah, and learning to celebrate what you had, even if you don't have it now, and learning to look to the future has been really helpful to me, especially with my health challenges, where it's like, I can't go for bike rides or jog anymore, and I hope to again someday, but I don't know if I will or not. Um, And yeah, it's tough to like to not think about that all the time, and to like get my yeah. head out of the things that I can't do instead of just focusing on what I can. Um, and recently I've been going through this process of sort of reconnecting to the things that I used to love. Um, like back in my, you know, my early years or like my mid, my twenties or something, um, like reconnecting with old friends, getting back into kayaking, um, remembering things that I love that I don't do anymore or people that I love that I don't talk to anymore and trying to reach out and, um, you know, th- things that aren't lost that were just kind of forgotten that can be rekindled. And I've feeling like more and more like I'm getting more in touch with myself through that, which has been really powerful for me. So, yeah, it's like some things have been removed from my life, but other things are there that didn't have to be gone that can be brought back. So, I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with this, but it's been helpful. Whatever <laughs> I'm saying has been helpful <laughs> for me. Um, At the
1: end of the day, I think what you're saying is finding yourself is is the key to to everything. Yeah. Um, whether that's rediscovery and appreciation of life, and whether that's finding the people that you belong with and the path of life you're supposed to be taking.
0: Absolutely. So, you've shared so many great tips with us about how you've dealt with your social anxiety. Give me, just to wrap things up here, give me a sense of the process. Um, I know you spent years, like, researching and going to therapy and learning all these tools and then self-applying them, and you've made so much progress. But what is the shape of that overall? Like, I I don't want people to be thinking, oh, if I can't do this right away, it's not going to work. Because obviously, no one does it right away. So, what does the process itself look like? How many years have you been on this journey? And when did you start to see progress?
1: It's been about two and a half years. And I started to see progress probably about six months in. Like, I'm sure there were smaller increments that must have kept me going. But the first aha moment of like, oh my God, like you just, it's, it's like, I just realized one day that I was currently doing something and enjoying it that I wouldn't have thought possible before. And just like, just pausing and looking around and being so happy. And that moment was when I was in a fitness class at the gym, I had just been doing like fitness class after fitness class of different types, starting with Pilates. Um, just things that were more and more nerve-wracking. And the fitness class that I was in at the time was called Core Clinic, and it was um, Strength and Mobility for Climbers. And that gym or that class took place right in the middle of the gym. Everyone who's climbing, everybody in the entire gym is watching you in that class. And I was having a great time. I'd made friends in that class. Like, we did something new every week, which... Would have terrified me before to not know what it would expect. What I would expect, unlike a Pilates or a yoga class that has the same sequence every time, it was different every single time. Everyone was watching me, and I was like, <laughs> not only there, I was enjoying myself, and I was like, holy shit, I've <laughs> made it!
0: <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. And
1: <laughs> yeah, and so, um, I think the order in which you you do all these things, and which suggestions you you think might help you or not really doesn't matter. Um, you know, because it's going to be different for everyone and just kind of experiment and see what works for you. But I can promise that when you get to your first aha moment, it is life changing.
0: Wow. And yeah, I mean, two and a half years, like you've made a lot of progress really quickly, it sounds like. And that's not to say that everyone who is going on this journey is going to see the same or similar results. It might be faster, it might be slower, but the thing that's so important is to try. So what would you say to someone who is afraid to try, who's having a hard time starting this journey of like the self-reflection and trying to apply any of these tools to themselves? Um, someone who's like having crippling social anxiety, who doesn't know how to just get off the couch and do the very first step Um What would you say to that person?
1: Make the steps smaller. Mm. Make it as small as you need to, even if it sounds very, very silly. Like, if you can't even go get the mail because you think someone might be outside and see you, like, go and get the mail in the middle of the night. Hmm. Do whatever you have to do to get moving. Once that ball's rolling, you've got inertia on your side, keep taking steps and if you can't even get started just make the step smaller you got it
0: that's awesome i love it laura thank you so much you did such a great job today we covered a lot of ground so many awesome tools you did some prep work and it it showed Um, i really appreciate all the thoughtfulness that you've applied to coming on the podcast and you did an amazing job thank you so much
1: thank you it's been really great and always great to chat with you as well
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Major Pain. I'm Jesse Mercury, your host and the producer of this podcast. Artwork by Egg Salad Salad. Our theme music is the song Time Machine from my sci-fi synth-pop album, available at jessemercury.bandcamp.com. Send your thoughts or questions to our email address, majorpainpodcast at gmail.com. You can also use that address to find us on PayPal. Tips are greatly appreciated. Don't forget to leave a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Find more information about this show or leave a comment on any episode at our website, majorpainpodcast.com. Major Pain is supported by listeners on Patreon. Thank you to our $2 per month supporters, our $7 per month patrons, Naomi Adele Smith, Sunny Roberts, and Laura Stevens, and our $25 per month producer, Steve Kavanaugh. Learn how you can support the show while receiving special recognition and gifts at patreon.com slash Podcast.